Welcome to the Wild Truth Chase podcast. This is season five already, episode two, and I'm here with my co-host Neeraj. Neeraj, how are you doing? Very well. How about yourself, Nick? I'm doing pretty well. I think that this this new experiment of ours is a little bit frustrating to start off with, but I think that frustration means hopefully that you're learning something. Yeah, definitely there's some growing pains in that direction, let's say. Good. So what are we going to be talking about today? So today we're going to be talking about Silicon Valley Bank. So the season five is all about Silicon Valley Bank and the downfall of it. We'll talk a little bit more about the history of Silicon Valley Bank today because we didn't really go into that last week. Last week we mainly touched on, I'd say, the immediate situation, which was basically it closing down and the fact that it looked like, I think at the time, I'm not sure it had been announced that the FDIC would be covering all deposits. And then another aspect of this new version of the Wild Truth Chase podcast is that we've been trying to figure out ways to integrate more data analyses into our routine and also to provide those to the audience members. And just want to get your take. How do you think that's going so far? I can definitely tell that I've been working as a manager over the last last year or so. <laughs> uh-huh. De- definitely a bit rusty having to try and remember how to do things again. So yeah, that's been, a. I would say that's been a stark reminder that if you don't use your skills, they just peter away. So it, it's good. It, it keeps me using what I used to know. Yeah. But I think also in your defense, I think even for people who do it daily, don't realize how, how difficult it is. I was a little bit surprised when I first started seeing this story and so many people talking about it. It seemed to me like it should be ripe for data-driven analyses, and I wasn't seeing a whole lot of that. Of course, upon more searching, you do find more. But then I realized that it's just hard to do something like that, and so it's been a good exercise for us, I think. And, and neither of us have really worked in with financial data before, so this is a new type of data, and that's always a challenge, trying to understand terminology and all those sorts of things for new types of data. So that's definitely something that I'm finding myself coming up against. Absolutely. So we did introduce this topic last episode, and we put out a question to the audience, which was, should anything be done to save Silicon Valley Bank? And what did the audience think? Heck no, is what It was a resounding heck no. Exactly. There was not much interest in saving Silicon Valley Bank, which is... Oh, I think that kind of sides with how I was thinking about it. Did that surprise you, Nick? Now I realize that even though I'm the one who wrote it, I think there is a problem with the question. And we may rephrase the question Mm -hmm. and we'll talk about how we might try to put a finer point on it this week and a little bit later in the conversation. But I know that one of the audience members mentioned that last week we didn't even really do a good job of introducing what was Silicon Valley Bank. I think we were working off the assumption everybody had heard about this and was doing their own reading of the backstory, but I think we're going to take a little bit of time to introduce it today. So what did you find out about the Silicon Valley Bank's backstory? I will say, actually, it was good feedback because even last week, I would say I didn't know too much about Silicon Valley Bank. And the only reason why it felt like a serious issue to me was because it was being reported everywhere in the news. So that kind of really made it quite prominent. So this was good for me to know as well, like digging into the details of why it was considered quite an an important bank. 
So Silicon Valley Bank, it was founded in 1983, which made it 39 years old at the time of its collapse. And just to put a bit of context around that, Wells Fargo was founded in 1929 and Bank of America, I think, can trace its roots back to 1784. Okay. It's not anywhere near the oldest, but at the same time, I think you did look at the sort of average age of FDI-insured banks in the U.S., Yeah, the average is less than than the age of Silicon Valley Bank. So it's it's not a total outlier in that it's been founded within the last 50 years. Yeah, so 39 years old, um, which means that it definitely had some history about it. It was founded by um, people from Bank of America, actually, Bill Biggerstaff and Robert Medieris. And it was particularly focused on the needs of startups. And that kind of is, and I think that's stayed true from inception up until the point at which it, which it didn't, well, which it experienced a bank run, but it was the go-to bank of half of venture-backed startups. So it really was a startup-focused bank. And you dug up a little bit more information about the changes in the business model over time. And there, we ran into a term that we both didn't really recognize, which was private banking. Upon further research, private banking mainly means that you're serving high net worth individuals. I think that's what you do. You offer them, you offer them services, you offer high net worth individuals services. I think that's what I took away. Yeah. It's just one of these euphemisms that's meant to disguise a little bit what it's actually about. Because yeah. I would have assumed that just like all banking is private, more or less. Maybe, maybe not your your crypto wallet, but otherwise, I would assume that most banking is private. Yeah, I have often wondered. Not that I ever find ever, ever found myself in the situation of what I'd do if I how I'd invest my money if I had a huge amount of money. And I, I think that is actually a tricky question. Have you ever thought about that, Nick? No, not really. I thought about things that I could do to help out people that I'm close to, but that's about as far as I've gotten. Yeah. Okay. More recently, its customers were essentially businesses in technology, life science, healthcare, uh, venture capital, and wine industries. I guess wine is a big thing in California. It would be really nice to look at those sort of esoteric markets like wine and art, because honestly, I don't know anything about them. And I don't know what sort of returns you get on buying a bottle of wine and holding it for many years. Separate from the bank run topic, you mean just look at niche markets? Yeah, niche markets. I think that would be... Uh, yeah, that that sounds interesting. Yeah, something that I really I don't know too much about. And then by December 31st, 2022, so just at the end of last year, 56% of its loan portfolio were loans to venture capital firms and private equity firms. Yeah, venture cap and private equity. So really about businesses and businesses as well and investing businesses. So it really, I think it, it has stayed true to its originating idea, which is to be a bank for startups and that sort of thing. Yeah. I think this is an interesting illustration of a more general phenomenon, which is we're talking about a bank that failed and something about why did the bank fail or why did the bank experience a bank run? We're talking about the history. And then for this bank, uh, a lot of its history has to do with its interaction with venture capital firms and stuff like that. But that's not to say that 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 necessarily played into what what led to a bank run. It may or may not have, but I think that there's a bias in assigning causality to whatever information you have available to you. So if the only thing you know is that the bank is called Silicon Valley Bank and that it serves venture capitalists, you may be thinking that the reason why it experienced a bank run is because it served venture capitalists, which it- which might be true, but it also may not be true. And I think some of that comes through in the responses that we've we've received in terms of should the Silicon Valley Bank be saved? Because 
I can imagine there isn't too much sympathy for uh, venture capital people and private equity. That's part of the business there to go bust. I think I read somewhere that Moody's rated the investment portfolio of Silicon Valley Bank as being quite conservative and offering good returns. So from that perspective, as good as Moody's is and all those sort of ratings agencies are, um, they obviously didn't think that it was massively risky. Yeah. And here again, I think it's fun to point out like after the fact when these kind of agencies that are involved in trying to regulate or rate these various kinds of investments get it wrong. That doesn't amount to an analysis of how often do they get it wrong. It could be, and it may be in this case, that those rating agencies are very corrupt and frequently get things wrong. They're worse than chance somehow, but we don't know if that's the case here or not. Yeah. So that was a little bit about the history of Silicon Valley Bank. So I would say one of the reasons why it was making the news so much was because it's the second biggest bank failure in the history of the U.S. And I guess there's different ways of looking at that. I guess the population of the U.S. has gone up over time. There's probably actually more money people can hold and available. So maybe the, if you really wanted to try and correct for all of these things, because the charts I was looking at were only correcting for inflation, you could try to. But the previous, the number one is Washington Mutual, which had which was holding $386 billion at the time of failure. And Silicon Valley Bank number two was holding $209 billion at the time of failure. So it was holding quite a decent amount of money. And Onik, you've been looking at what happened to Silicon Valley Bank. Like any bank, the bank takes deposits and then a bank is a business and it's tasked with making money somehow. And so the business model is to take the deposits that people make and then make investments of your own. The kind of classical case is that the bank is paying you interest to store money in the bank. And so the bank has to make more on its investments than it's paying out in interest just to remain as a viable business. Now, in this case, it seems like what happened was that at least on paper, because of recent changes in the macroeconomic environment, the value of the bank's investments, Silicon Valley Bank in particular, had decreased a lot. And for people who want to dig in there, there's a relationship between the value of these long-term investments and interest rates, which have been climbing throughout 2022. And my basic understanding is that because the value of the investments had decreased a lot, people started worrying about whether or not they were going to be able to get their money out. Two weeks ago, this would not really have been on a lot of people's radar, including mine, which is that there's a possibility that if a bank is mismanaged and you put your money in, it's not just sitting there necessarily waiting for you to take it out again. It's possible you may not ever be able to take it out. And of course, people who have you know more perspective thinking about these things realize that's the case. And so if you are worried about not being able to take your money out, what you should do is take your money out before everybody else takes their money out. And so people started withdrawing. And I think the statistic that I heard was that there, were, there was $42 billion withdrawn from Silicon Valley Bank in one day, which is a lot. And then seeing that this bank was likely going to fail, basically the government took it over. It went into receivership. And shortly thereafter, I think this all happened like in the course of a weekend, the government created something called the Bank Term Funding Program, which as I understand it is basically a loan program to banks, which was specifically designed to ease concerns about banks going under 
so that there won't be panic and there won't be these bank runs. Just to add to the to the what happened, I think that the and you hinted at it, the liquidity is another part of it because I think the Silicon Valley Bank had made some long-term investments for which there were quite significant penalties for taking them out in the short term. And when the bank run started to happen, they found themselves in a position where they didn't have the available cash because it was locked up in longer term investments. And in order to make that money available, they were having to take a significant hit on their investment. That's right. Yeah. Which I don't follow too much. Just in after the 2008 financial crisis, I was paying attention a bit more to the capitalization rates and how much how much banks actually hold in hard cash. But I don't know what the rules are, even in the UK now, definitely not in the US of how much they need to hold because yeah banks for some reason like in the wild back in the wild west times i guess if you gave them money they had a big safe and they just put all your cash in the safe and it was there when any time you needed it and i guess it's just really not like that now they don't have everybody's cash on hand it's all out and some of it's liquid and some of it really isn't yeah just to be clear why that's the case if they're holding your cash they can't make money on that and so they want to invest more of your money and therefore have less on hand and in some sense, it might seem like, and this is getting back to the question of whether or not something should have been done to save these banks, quote unquote, in some sense, it seems like they were just operating like a normal bank and that there's nothing particular that they did wrong. I think if you really get into it, there are questions about whether they did a good job of managing risk and matching the time horizon of their investments to the the need for cash. And I think there's certainly room to criticize them there, but probably the most damning thing that I heard about Silicon Valley Bank in particular was that I think it was the whoever was heading up the bank at the time. The, my, so the, the, there are particularly harsh regulations that are placed on very large banks in the US. And Silicon Valley Bank was approaching the size where they would have to be regulated like the other large banks are. And I think that this person actually went in front of the Congress and argued that they shouldn't, for various reasons, be be treated like a big bank because that would quote unquote stifle innovation because they're loaning money to all of these innovative companies. And it's an open question whether or not like those additional regulations would have stopped this, but it certainly would have been in the right direction. And so I think that's the most damning thing I've heard about actions taken by people in Silicon Valley Bank in terms of their culpability of what happened to them in the end. But yeah, okay. So that's unexpected. Just on a on a slight tangent, would you, if you were a depositor in a bank and the bank was arguing this case, how would you feel? Do you think you would pay attention to that, or do you and be like, no, that doesn't sound like a great idea? Well, so, that yeah, that that's a good segue into our next topic, which is, does it mean to quote unquote save a bank, and who are the different parties involved? And so you mentioned depositors. Yeah. To answer your question, given infinite bandwidth, I would want to pay attention to what kind of things my bank was saying in front of Congress in terms of whether or not it should be regulated. Because it's definitely in my interest for, I think, it's unequivocal to say that it's in my interest for the bank that I deposit my money in to be pretty heavily regulated because regulations tend to be in favor of the depositors, meaning in securing their money. And so... I'd like to say, yes, I would be paying attention to that. But in practice, if there weren't any recent crises, honestly, I think I wouldn't be paying attention. Because part of that is taking that line as a as like the head of the bank, who is that really to benefit? The investors. The investors. The bank, it's yeah. not going to benefit the depositors. 
No. It's just there to benefit the investors. That's right. So shortly after we recorded our last episode, when we were both pretty new to this topic, we had a, a chat going back and forth about whether or not anything should be done to stop this failure. And I think that even more than I realized at the time, I was really taking the point of view of the depositor and a pretty like, naive point of view, just thinking if I did put my money in that bank, which thankfully I hadn't, what would I think about like my money just having the possibility of suddenly disappearing? And so I was in favor of taking some action to help the depositors. I think that you were taking more the position that nothing should be done to save the investors or the owners of the bank. And it seemed like we were disagreeing, but but do you think that maybe the difference was just whether or not it was we were thinking about the owners and investors or the depositors? So I definitely don't think that anything should be done for the owners and investors at all. And I don't know if this because I didn't read any further about this, but I, I saw something in the news today about so because Silicon Valley Bank also operated in the UK, and I saw something about their uh, their management getting pretty sizable bonuses. And maybe Silicon Valley Bank UK was really performing well. Maybe it was just the headquarters that was that went wrong. So I don't know too much about it, but I did find that quite interesting. But I would also say that the I, it's tough to know because with the depositors do have the insurance for deposits, right? And, and in UK at least, this insurance value is pretty well advertised. Every time you open a bank account, it's very it's made very clear what the maximum protected amount is. And yeah, I feel like you can make decisions based on that. I feel like it's a slippery slope with also protecting depositors. And a lot of what I've seen about protecting depositors is mainly, okay, you're going to stifle lots of innovation and all these sorts of things. But also acting to save depositors is also going to have an effect in other negative effects if you act and you'll stifle some innovation in other ways. It's not like that's the only form of innovation that can happen. But the other thing about depositors is there's lots of businesses that may go out of business for lots of reasons and many of which are going to be out of their control but then why favor the ones that suffer from banks going out of business yeah yeah i think that was an interesting point that you made i mean there are all kinds of unforeseen and for the most part uncontrollable things that put businesses out of business and their bank there they deposited their money experience a bank run is just one of them so it seems like if you're going to save depositors from or businesses from going out of business because their bank experienced a bank run, what's to say that you shouldn't save them for going out of business for any number of other reasons? I think it would be an interesting exercise to try to enumerate what some of those other reasons are, because there are a lot of things that we also do to save businesses. For example, in the US, there was the Paycheck Protection Program during, during COVID. COVID, which was a similar thing. It's, these businesses didn't have any fault in starting COVID. So we're going to try to back them up so that they can continue to pay their employees while their business has been hit by this unforeseen event. I know it's a little bit putting you on the spot, but can you think of any other reasons where the business is fundamentally out of control and it just goes out of business and we don't backstop? I can probably think about some situations which are around, say, let's say about city planning, city dynamics, where you open a business in a certain area, maybe the area gets worse. It puts you out of business, really not through any fault of your own, but say like the fault of many reasons why an area may get worse. And, and in that case, when you sign the lease, there's there's no print that says this area is likely to be bad for business in the future. 
unlike yeah. when you open a bank account. Yeah, yeah, because when you open a bank account, it's clear that it's spelled out that this is your protection provided by the FDIC. So I can imagine many reasons. Okay, for instance, all the malls that were built around America that had loads of businesses in them and people's behavior changes and all those, I think there's many instances of malls going out of business and the businesses in them actually going out of business too. And you could argue that, okay, they should have known that having a mall outside of town is a bad option, but yeah, I don't know. It's probably difficult to compare just a just one off the top of my head. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting point. I thought, so I think for people who take a more sort of calculating approach to thinking about this, I've heard people say that it's important to keep the trust in the banking industry in particular as a kind of cornerstone of business in the U S it's a matter of if you don't do this, are there going to be further knock-on effects that are going to hurt other people? And yeah, it's such a complex machine that I think it's hard to say for sure. Yeah, I mean, the other side of that is how do you get banks to operate better? And that's not to say, again, that's not to say that they could have actually predicted what was happening because it does seem like inflation might have been a big part of what happened. Financial predictions are notoriously hard, so I'm not sure how much you can blame them for not anticipating that. But yeah, I don't know. it's a tough one. Okay, so... Maybe just help close us out here. We'll talk a little bit about what digging we did do into the data this week. And we took slightly different approaches to this. So do you want to start by talking about what you were working on this week? Yeah, so this week I was trying to get balance sheet information for Silicon Valley Bank, because what I wanted to understand at least is what the assets versus liabilities have looked like throughout the years. There, There is a page that you can download their financial reports from, and I've been doing that, but It's as with all things with data, it's not the nicest format and they're not massively consistent. So I've just actually been spending time trying to get them into a more consistent format so I can actually have a look and see what's been going on. Because part of how I think about this is for sure there are some macro issues, but also has the behavior of the bank itself changed? Has their attitude to risk changed? Have they been operating in a different way? And I was hoping to maybe explore that through looking at their balance sheets. But mentioning the macro stuff, Nick? Yeah. Again, like you mentioned, not having a background in this area, I sought help in terms of trying to understand what types of data I would want to look at. And so I went back to our old friend, ChatGPT, and had a long conversation about what types of data might be interesting to look at. The way I framed it was, if you're interested in trying to figure out which banks are likely to experience a bank run, that's the framing of it. And broke it out into different types of data, including, as you mentioned, macroeconomic indicators and also bank-specific financial data. So that's what you were looking at. And then otherwise, it included market sentiment, regulatory environment, external events and shocks, and social and behavioral factors. And my understanding is that the training data set for this model included data, I think, up until sometime in 2021. And so presumably has no explicit knowledge of this particular event, but I I thought a pretty good set of types of data to start to dig into. And so I just started at the top of the list this week and started looking at different macro environmental variables. And this type of data is available in the U.S. through something called the FRED website. So links to all of this stuff will be available in the show notes. 
And I was looking at, for example, the GDP growth rate, the unemployment rate, the inflation rate, and also interest rates. And I think that last one is probably the most interesting. And I've also heard it cited in several analyses that I listened to of this situation. And it's pretty remarkable in the sense that interest rates, if you look at the whole history going back to the 1950s, interest rates fluctuate between near zero and 20%, where 20% was in the early 1980s. And then since about 2010, on that scale, interest rates have been hugging the zero line pretty closely and can't go below zero. So that's like the minimum value for the interest rate. And then in 2020, the interest rates started going up pretty rapidly to almost 5% in early 2023. And it was that spike that apparently caused the value of those long-term investments that Silicon Valley Bank was holding to decrease so much. And yeah, I think that the People can see these graphs if they go to the data lore report and also leave a comment. I'd be very interested to see if anyone actually makes it to the page and is able to leave a comment. But I think that I'll be able to take these and then cross-reference them with some of the other types of data that um, we want to look into and then see if we can figure out anything about how Silicon Valley Bank compared to other banks with respect to the way it was managing its money. Yeah, and regarding data as well, I think the I've been reading a bit more on the FDIC website, and it does seem like they may have they hold a lot of this reporting information about business accounting. I just don't know. I've been looking at the APIs, but it's unclear to me right now which ones I actually need to use to get it. So that's an alternative avenue that I haven't explored yet, and I didn't actually know existed until a bit earlier today. But I'll also put a link to that in the description too. Excellent. This is proving harder than I thought, but like I said at the top, I think that hopefully that means we're learning something. Absolutely. I'm definitely learning something and I look forward to learning even more. All right, everybody. Thanks for joining us and check out all the resources in the show notes and we will see you next week. See you everyone.